Hello, fellow design nerds. And welcome if you're one of those people who, like me, is tickled by architecture and the world that designers create. You're listening to Prairie Design Lab, we're a brand new podcast coming to you from the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture in Winnipeg, Manitoba. Our stories grow out of the prairie context of the first architecture school in Western Canada. The University of Manitoba's faculty was founded in 1919. More than a century later, it is still one of the most dynamic schools in Canada. We bring stories of design from the prairies and beyond. The Prairie Design Lab podcast is created by the students, the faculty of the university, and by many ordinary people who care deeply about our relationship with the built environment. Oh, I'm Terry McLeod, the host and producer of Prairie Design Lab, or PDL, which is what we call it for short. And no, I'm not an architect, but I am a design nerd. So what equips me to create a podcast about architecture and design, aside from being infatuated by design. I did once try to go to architecture school, but I panicked in my first strength in materials and advanced calculus classes. I dropped out and studied psychology instead to get over my panic. But I have had a long career as a radio producer and as a host with CBC Radio, and I've spent a lifetime building kind of weird things. Sofas made of ice blocks cast in milk cartons, Furniture made of salvaged refrigerator boxes, Quincy snow houses, kids' backyard playhouses, lofty tree houses, playmobile houses, fancy furniture. Need I go on? Uh, I'm a building nerd too. Enough about me. Let's turn now to the story of a real architect, an architect who is in mourning. Today, our first story takes us from downtown Winnipeg to a city just west of Edinburgh, Scotland. And it's this sound that starts us on this journey. Those are some of the sounds of a huge demolition that concluded this summer just behind Winnipeg City Hall. It was the sound of the 54-year-old public safety building being demolished. The former jail, courthouse, remand center, and police headquarters was reduced to rubble. I walked toward that demolition of the public safety building with the architect who designed it, Les Stetchison of Winnipeg. He's now 86. As we approached, in the distance I could see the huge yellow excavator reaching up six stories to tear apart Stetchison's building. The look on his face betrayed his pain. Are you ready for what you're about to see? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure. I got a glimpse of it there and it didn't look very good. You haven't been here during the demolition. If you're a parent, the one thing you, you, you dread is one of my children dying before me. <laughs> so it was just too painful. Much too painful. Everything was decided and done, so what could I do other than suffer watching it come down? No, it was a very unfortunate process, the whole thing. Why do you say that? When they did the study as to whether they should uh, declare the building a surplus or not, one of the engineers that worked on it said this building was, was so well built, under, under normal uh, maintenance, it would last at least 500 years. Well, there's two things that really brought it down, I think. First of all, 
the facade looks like like solid stone. An engineer that was working on it came up with an idea of using a thinner stone glued to concrete behind it, eh? which reduced the cost considerably. But what they didn't realize at the time when they, they came out with this idea was that concrete and uh, stone have two different uh, coefficients of expansion. So uh, after a number of years of sitting there, the stone started to separate. So they started to consider the whole building as falling apart. Eh? That was kind of the public conception. That was the one thing. Then, then when they made the decision to go to uh, buy the post office, and move the, the complex there, the cost they got into there, as everybody knows, just totally escalated. So they, they started to make, find reasons to rationalize why this building should come down. How did this building come to be? The original jail that I was called, they didn't call it public safety then, they called it a jail, was on Rupert. And it, it was, quite frankly, it was medieval. It was so primitive. So it was obvious that they needed a new facility. But they expanded the scope. This became actually a remand center. And it remained so until they built the remand center downtown. So at one point they had uh, courtrooms in there as well, right from the beginning. Eh? Well, once they had the remand center over there, they, the courtrooms were obsolete. So some of the functions of the building actually uh, changed. Now, as we look at the building where we can see the, the guts of it exposed now, what did you think as the exterior began to deteriorate and the Tyndall stone had to be strapped on? We can see from where we're standing now. Very upsetting. When they did the cost analysis of the building to determine whether they should consider a surplus, the cost to replace the facade was out of a final figure of over 100 million. The cost to replace the facade was 7 million. What they did to kind of uh, they analyzed that while other departments would be moving into the building, they would require uh, what they call uh, improvements, eh? Them, fit them in there. So they added those costs of moving people into there into the cost of the building itself and that really exaggerated the whole issue significantly we have a, a private building tenants improvements are never part of the cost of the building they're always a part of the tenant who's moving in there totally exaggerated the cost this is what we call a brutalist building and there's a lot of brutalist buildings around the world there's a lot of public reaction against them they're considered well brutal <laughs> essentially they've had a hard time all over the world with uh, public acceptance of a lot of so-called brutal buildings. And th this one had th that same reputation. That might have started eh? the, the, the feeling of the building itself. And then when they found rationale as to why, you know, I think that just sealed the fate of it. How conscious were you of the fact that this has become seen as a brutalist building? I was aware of what was going on, you know, in, in the architectural world at that time, you know, by I had a friend of mine who, uh, from England who was going to school here. He was telling me about this work that was going on in England by the uh, London County Council, which was the governing body of, of London. They had a huge architectural department, and they were doing a, a significant amount of uh, public housing. They're the ones that restarted this whole movement, the groups that were starting this movement towards this kind of architecture. The 50s were, um, were essentially were kind of Miesian. It was very... Uh, glass grid type buildings, eh? which are quite simple. They're simple to teach the technique of doing it, but in the hands of a lot of uh, uh, architects who weren't that competent, they turned up some really boring buildings. And it was starting to get a reputation of being cold. So architects were looking at more expressive ways of doing a more sculptural kind of uh, architecture. And really the, the, the essence of that was La Corbusier himself. That's where it really kind of derived from, you might say. Eh? In fact, the main name itself is French, Breton Brew. 
like B-R-U-T, which means raw concrete. And that's where that, that brutalism term evolved. But it, it was so named in, by this group of architects in London, that from the London County Council, they're working on these public housing. Why did you settle on brutalism as your architectural style for this well, building? My prof in university was uh, Morley Blankstein. Took his postgraduate at the uh, in Chicago, at the the Chicago uh, where was it now? Which university? The Illinois Institute of Technology was it that one? Yeah, Illinois, which is headed by Mies van der Rohe. Yeah. Morley Blankstein was a uh, he was our, our critic for our design sessions. He was always emphasizing the, kind of the kind of the Miesian approach. You start off with a grid for planning. Eh? You said a, a structural grid. I found that really gave me kind of a basis to to work from. Eh? I was kind of doing Miesian architecture for the first couple of years, and, and that was really the, the style that was prominent at that time. Eventually, you started to get tired of it. Eh? You started to say, well, there's got to be more to it than, than that, to drawing a grid. A major influence uh, for here and for a lot of architects was the, there was a competition in the 60s for the Boston City Hall. That was a major kind of uh, uh, influence. And, uh, you know, we were kind of aware, and so we started experimenting with a lot of these things. Eh? But we, we didn't call it brutalist, though. It wasn't called brutalist then. <laughs> what, what did you call it? Modern architecture. <laughs> that, that kind of evolved eventually because uh, it started to get reactions because of its brutal look. This, not so much because it's mostly stone, but a lot of these British buildings are all raw concrete. Eh? And, uh, well, wet, damp areas, concrete doesn't weather that well. I mean, it lasts, but it stains very badly, and it looks really brutal. In fact, the building that was influenced for this for brutalism, which was a Unity Habitation, which is in uh, Marseille, is a very brutal building. <laughs> very brutal. It's just raw concrete, eh? and it's going to stain black and so forth. But it's considered one of the landmarks of uh, contemporary architecture. Today, when you're building a building, a lot of uh, energy and carbon goes into the construction of the building. It's considered now that when you're considering uh, demolition, you have to start analyzing it from that point as well. Because there's a cost of all the energy that goes into the making of the, all the materials that go into the first building, plus the construction, and then the cost of hauling it to the demolition site and the landfill as well. And then the extra cost of rebuilding it. So you're, you know, it's significant. And it changes the whole economics of, of the rationale. It's a really interesting point that you make in terms of the assessment of the carbon footprint of this kind of thing. And, and, and there are a lot of jurisdictions where they, they actually do that for government buildings or civic buildings. I, I learned about them in Scotland. And in Scotland, they actually do that for a lot of, a lot of their heritage buildings. They go through this whole process of an analysis from that point of view. That's part of the cost, eh? And it's, it happens in other places, too. But here, they didn't even want to talk about it. Where would all this demolition material be going? And, and the landfill somewhere out there out in, on uh, Brady, somewhere there. They have one area that's just for construction materials. But concrete, it doesn't break down. <laughs> it, it's always there. Winnipeg architect Les Stetchison's reflections on the fate of the public safety building got us thinking about how to deal differently with the issues of demolition, repurposing, recycling, and with the concept of carbon footprint. Les told us that in Scotland, they do things differently. So we reached out to the government agency there called Zero Waste Scotland. Stephen Boyle is the head of the construction program at Zero Waste Scotland. Prairie Design Lab student collaborator Owen Swendrowski Yerricks is a third year student in landscape architecture and urbanism at the U of M. 
Owen spoke to Stephen Boyle from his office in Stirling, just west of Edinburgh. What are the goals of Zero Waste Scotland? To create a society where resources are valued and nothing is wasted. And we strive to look at basically three areas of change. The responsible consumption, responsible production, and the reduction of waste and recovering the true value of resources. We focus on all of the construction of uh, areas uh, from infrastructure through new buildings, the re retrofit of buildings and the deconstruction of them. We focus on two things as a construction programme and that's the valuing of resources and products. Um, when I say products, we also talk about buildings, bridges, roads, uh, they are a product in their own rights and the materials that are in there. So yeah, we really truly value the resources and encourage people to understand the value of those resources as well. And the other one is carbon. Our aim is to reduce carbon to help the Scottish Government meet its 2045 targets on being a net zero carbon country. And we can only do that by valuing the resources and materials that we have. So the very first question we ask about any part of deconstruction or demolition is, do you need to do it in the first place? The property, the building, the bridge that you have is a, a valuable product made from valuable materials. Uh, that could have a new life being repurposed or recovered. Uh, can we recover those materials for uh, a second, third or fourth life to again retain the value of those products? How do you determine the cost of the materials and of an existing building or piece of infrastructure's carbon footprint? How, how do you figure that? There's a number of different approaches that you can take and we look at the whole life value of materials and the buildings that they are in. There's two main things which build up the carbon in a building and its its value. Uh, one of those is the, the embodied carbon of the materials and the second one is the operational carbon of a building and that, that's the energy you use, the heat that you use throughout the life of the building. We focus quite a lot on the embodied carbon uh, and the materials that they are in there and the value that they have. And you take that through the, the extraction of those materials, the processing of the materials, the transportation of those materials to a site, say we're building a building, then the energy that's used and the waste that's generated in that building's construction. Then we have the operational carbon where you use the energy throughout the life of the building. And then at the end of the life of the building, there's a recovery of the materials or if they need to be the disposal of those materials and the treatment and that then is necessary to then dispose of them. And across that whole life chain is that's where the whole value, be it cost, be it carbon, that we look at within the calculations and within the work that we do. What do you factor in and what do you consider when deciding whether to refurbish a project, restore a project, or demolish and build a new? For uh, the refurbishment of a building, you look at the building as it stands and ask the question, do you need to deconstruct it? Do you need to demolish that building? And what was the cost of doing that from the cost for the contractor to go in and do that work and also for the extraction of the materials and the treatment of those materials after you have created them from that demolition, from that deconstruction. 
part of that is on a cost basis, but also there's part of that which is about the carbon. So you measure the carbon of the work in the deconstruction from the energy in the vehicles that you use to do that, the transportation of those materials, and also in the carbon which is generated from the processing of those waste materials at the end of their life. And potentially for materials which can biodegrade, what the biodegradability of those is will give you a carbon figure as well per tonne of those materials. So you can work out how much the carbon it costs and how much the cash costs are. Once we know that, then we can actually look at what the building is in itself and what values it has. Could it be repurposed? Could it be adapted for a different purpose? Could a, an ex-public sector building be transformed into, say, a block of flats that people can use? And what would be the social value of that work as well? Uh, and what that would do to the local environment. And then what we do is, if that can be repurposed, we calculate what that repurposing value would be from the cost of adaptation, the savings from the reduction in generation of resources for a new building of that type, and also the, the social values as well, and the carbon savings. One of the things which we have done recently is worked with um, the universities of Scotland and one of them is Strathclyde University and they looked at their buildings, a learning centre that they have been looking at constructing. They had two old buildings uh, side by side that were uh, not fit for the purpose that they wanted them to be, which was a brand new learning and teaching centre. We looked at the deconstruction of that building and the generation of the materials and the carbon from that. They also looked at what the new build would be within the carbon and the cost of that. Then looking at what the refurbishment would be. And they identified uh, that you could make a 67% reduction in the amount of carbon over the lifetime of that new development through the refurbishment of that building rather than from knocking it down, demolishing it and rebuilding it, which was a total saving of somewhere in the region of um, 6.2 million kilograms of CO2 equivalent. What would you say is your favourite or perhaps uh, the most creative reuse of a building, repurposing of a material to build a new building? Building mineral waste is probably the most robust and, and can be made into everything from recycled aggregate to uh, to bricks, uh, to mortar and to um, different products around. And we have worked with a number of companies here in Scotland who have transformed plant-based materials, mainly hemp and sisal, uh, into insulation materials, very good insulation materials as well. One of the most exciting lines on, of sources of that, those insulation materials is um, the fact that in Scotland we have lots of Starbucks, Costa Coffees, other coffee chains, and they are, all the coffee is transported into Scotland through bags which are made up of either hemp or a sisal. There's no route to market for those bags when they're completed. So what we do is they're collected and they're, they're repurposed back into insulation for uh, houses here in Scotland. It seems as though uh, sustainable building and development is held, say, in higher regard in Europe compared to in North America. What would be some factors playing into this cultural difference? I would suspect the fact that energy is so cheap 
you have abundance of oil, one of the world's largest producers of oil. And because of that, I would suspect that the drivers to reduce uh, oil use, energy use is probably not there as much uh, as it is here in Europe, where we don't have the same reserves of oil and coal as you do. And of course, things like fuel poverty and resource scarcity. These are things which we need to consider. And these are drivers. Another factor, of course, is the real awareness in Europe about our environment and protecting our environment and the threats of uh, climate change, uh, and which we are seeing in our weather patterns uh, currently. And uh, countries such as the Netherlands are all too aware of uh, due to the low-lying nature of their a lot of their land. So we've got a great deal of environmental policies and regulations which are there to help and support us to tackle climate change. One of the things which I'd also say is that we have forward-thinking governments as well, um, not just here in Scotland, but across the UK and across Europe, who have put in place regulations and strategies and policies to drive this. Um, here in Scotland, we have our Climate Change Scotland Act. What exactly does a fully optimized circular economy look like when it's applied to uh, architecture and the construction and then demolition of a building? Circular economy approach is really to look at things right from the beginning and where we value materials within a building um, from throughout its life. We want to make our buildings last for as long as possible, so we design them to be adaptable so that they can be repurposed at the end of their first life, be that an office, be that a shop, be that a residential uh, building. We also like to see buildings built in layers so that you don't put in a layer um, that has only got a lifespan of 10 years behind a layer of a building, such as its infrastructure, which could last for 50 years, 100 years, because then you would actually destroy one of those layers which lasts for a much longer period of time to replace something which has a much shorter lifetime. So layers is an important aspect of it as well. Also, de think about deconstruction right from the start. How can you deconstruct a building so that you can recover the materials and recover the value of those materials at the end of their life? So think about things such as mechanical fixings, screws, bolts, Think about how you can bolt a steel frame together so that at the end of the day, you can unbolt it and reuse it in a new building at the end of 30 or 40 year period of time where you've actually deconstructed that building. And the other one is use more sustainable and natural materials. So let's use more materials which sequestrate carbon. Let's look at wood. Let's look at sisal and hemp and wool and all these natural materials which can sequestrate carbon but at the end of their life they're natural materials and can be reused but also at the end of their life be reintroduced back into our natural environment in a more sustainable way and by doing that we gain greater recovery of materials but greater circularity and uh, overall we drive down the cost both in carbon and in finances because if you can recover materials at the end of the age of a building then you can get value from them through the resale or the reuse of that material offsetting um, the use of raw materials uh, and the cost and carbon of those and that's that's it in a nutshell <laughs> Stephen thank you so much for calling in all the great okay. information thanks very much for that
Stephen Boyle is the head of the construction program at Zero Waste Scotland. He joined Owen Swendrowski Yerricks from Stirling, Scotland. Owen is a landscape and urbanism student at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Architecture. That concludes our debut episode of Prairie Design Lab. Next week on Prairie Design Lab, we explore the transformation of a downtown Winnipeg park. More than 100 years ago, Central Park was the elite park in Winnipeg. And then things changed in the 70s and 80s and 90s, and things have come back significantly since then. We'll find out how that happened through the eyes of Raymond and Garbui, who's played a big part in transforming the park and being transformed by it himself. <laughs>